Amen. Thank you, Lori. Well, please stand with me as we read God's Word that He has providentially ordained that we would hear today. Christ, as we have talked about, is, is now journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem to lay down His life. And the series of providences brought into His way as Jesus Christ teaches us what we ought to know before He leaves this earth. And today and tomorrow, next week, we will, we will see marriage. And I'm going to read from verses 1 through 12, but today we're going to focus on verses 1 through 6 as we think about Christ magnifying marriage. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds followed Him and He healed them there. And Pharisees came to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning had made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give, her a to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, as such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you and into one of the most glorious doctrines and institutions that you have ordained. And we come before you, God, uh, in your providence and in your goodness. You have set us in a culture and a time where marriage is uh, greatly under attack and greatly misunderstood by your people, God. I pray that you would help us today to, to see the beauty of marriage, to see, God, by your grace, that the error that we typically have and the hardships that we are tempted to, to break our union with one another is because of our low view of marriage. Help us to see the high view that Jesus Christ gives. And Lord, this cannot be done by me alone. I pray that you take these measly portions of dry and maybe moldy bread, God, and that you would use them in your providence and grace and break them and make them sufficient and healthy and good for your people today. Please, God, guide us by your spirit. We believe in you and we believe that you will speak today. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Considering this text this week, what my mind is drawn to is our, our fascination, perhaps since the revivals of the 18th century, is our fascination with extraordinary religious experience. That is, then, when we mostly consider religion and impactful things that happen in our Christian life, we tend to think of those things that are the extraordinary moments of our salvation, the moment where God called us by His grace. And certainly those are wonderful moments. 
But as we consider what the Scripture says, it often and always points us back over and over again not to seek extraordinary experiences in the Spirit to grow in our faith, but to seek the ordinary things that God has given us. He points us over and over back to the old things that He has done in history to believe the report of the Gospel. He calls us over and over again to submit ourselves to simple prayer and waiting on the Lord. He gives us analogies of these things. Not by showing our spiritual growth in the extraordinary moments, but showing our and illustrating our spiritual growth in the agricultural. The slow growth of a vine being trimmed and grapes growing over a process of time. And why I bring this up today, brothers and sisters, is often we think about that in our marriage, don't we? That is to say, we are so overcome with seeking after extraordinary things that we often forget the ordinary things that God has given us. And when we think of marriage, it's so ordinary to our daily lives. We wake up beside the same person every day. We look at them. They cook us the same meal perhaps every day. We have the same conversations every day. And sometimes we forget that God has actually viewed marriage in a very high way. So let us not confuse today that just because a thing is ordinary does not mean that it's used greatly by God and it's not seen highly and esteemed by God. Because in fact, in our text, that's the that we have. The Pharisees tended to see marriage as a very low and ordinary thing that could be dispensed with at will. But Jesus Christ sees marriage, this institution given from the beginning of the world that the vast majority of humans will partake in, as something exceedingly high and glorious in our lives. Christ, in this text, corrects Low views of marriages and divorce among the Pharisees and his own disciples. That's what happens here today. Now, the purpose that I have before us today is that we would see the beauty and the sanctity of marriage, but also that we would hold marriage in honor in our thoughts and in our life. That is, not only that we would see this doctrine, but that we would adopt it and it would affect us and how we deal with our spouses Now, (coughs) the majority of what we're going to look at today is the beauty and the sanctity of marriage from the lips of our Savior Jesus Christ and how highly He exalts these things. And I would tell you today that we must adopt Jesus' view of marriage in this text. And this is given to us in a particular setting. That is, as Christ tells us how we should view marriage, God in His providence had ordained that something would take place in a setting in which that would happen. And in verses 1 and 2, we see the setting is in Jesus Christ traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. All throughout the book of Matthew, up until this very point, Matthew has spent these 18 chapters in Galilee, ministering to His people. But he knows that months away... He is going to be lifted up on a tree. He is going to experience the wrath of God for fallen humanity in order to save us. And so he begins his journey. And on this journey, he is going to encounter several different things. And we notice the journey here, don't we, in verses 1-2. through He goes from Judea and enters the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And all this probably means is they went around the area of Samaria and went to the other side of the Jordan before they 
crossed over. We see the typical thing that Christ is doing. As He is going and preaching the Gospel, going to die for sinners, He gives signs along the way of the glory that He is going to give. He heals sinners to typify and show that He heals any that come to Him. He forgives sin. But there's another setting that we see here. It's a setting of hardship and temptation. Hardship and temptation. And through this hardship and temptation that our Savior is going to experience, God is pleased by His grace to teach His church truth. Notice that in chapter 19 and through, verse 20, and through chapter 20, rather, that Christ is using the opportunity of these challenges brought to Him to give us the ethics of the kingdom of heaven that often and probably always challenge our own earthly and worldly thinking. Notice in verses 13 through 15, Jesus challenges the disciples and how they viewed children at the time. Instead of shoving them to the side as something that's unimportant for the ministry, to raise them and accept them, to guide them to Jesus Christ and put no hindrance in their way, challenging what the disciples thought and probably the rest of society at that time. In verses 16 through 26, Jesus challenges our conception of good works and shows us the danger of resting on our own good works to obtain eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. And then in the last part of verses 27 and through the majority of chapter 20, we have the laborers in the vineyard and the setting for that where Jesus Christ challenges and shows us the offensive nature of grace to sinful human hearts. But today, we see that this this context, Jesus uses it in verses 1 through 12 to challenge our sinful notions of marriage and divorce. And we see it beginning in verse 3. The Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking. Now, at the start of things, we might not see that as too controversial, too weighty of a thing. But as these men approach Jesus Christ, a very particular Greek word is used here, parazo, which means tempted. This is the same word that was used of the devil in Matthew chapter 4. And instead of the devil coming personally and visibly to our Lord and Savior and tempting Him to worship Him, He sends His ministers to Him at this point. As 2 Corinthians 11 tells us, the Satan's ministers can appear as angels of light. These men, these Pharisees, enemies of the Gospel, are going to Jesus Christ in order to test Him and to tempt Him. <coughs> now, what we should realize is that this, causes, and sh- this really causes hardship for our Messiah. For example, in Psalm 56, we have a psalm that that clearly is pointing forward to the Messiah coming. And I want you to notice the hardship that David and the fulfillment the greater David goes through through the testing and hardship of his enemies. Notice in verse 5, and try to feel the weight of what Christ Himself would have experienced as men test Him and tempt Him all the days of His life. All day long they injure My cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited 
for my life. Do you see the picture that's being drawn there? It's as if Christ is prey out there in the woods somewhere and some man is hunting after him. Think of the anxiety that that would produce in a sinful human heart. But I'll tell you here today, Jesus Christ felt the weight of men constantly being against Him. Constantly trying to be His enemies. Hunted down. And He was hunted down by these men with controversial questions. Trying to ensnare Him in His talk. Trying to find something that didn't accord with true doctrine or orthodoxy. So that they might say to the people and to His disciples, this man is not the Messiah that He claims to be, but He's something else. And in our text today, they bring one of the hardest in their minds and controversial questions of the day about marriage. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. Now, we have in here a historical argument between two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but you get the, you get the meaning. And these two men, we have Shammai, who is the more conservative of the rabbis here, and he would argue that from Deuteronomy 24, which is the ordinance of divorce given in the Old Testament, that a man could only divorce his wife if there was fornication that had taken place in adultery. That was the only legal means by which he could do it. But the more popular of the time, the far more popular idea at the time was from Rabbi Hillel, which stated that you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. He even said very clearly that if your wife burns your food and you're displeased with her because of that, you could divorce her. Or if you just found another woman that was more pleasing to you, you could get rid of your wife. A very, very low view of marriage, but this was the popular notion among the Jewish people at the time. Now, think about that with me. These men are hunting after Christ to find something wrong with Him. They bring something that's very popular in the common mind. They tempt Him to say something that would bring Him away from the popular from popularity with the people. And they probably knew from Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus held this notion, this high view of marriage. And they're trying to ensnare Him in His talk. Trying to ensnare Him in His talk. Freedom and happiness of man to divorce his wife was a given in this culture. And even among His disciples, it seems like this was the knee-jerk reaction. Notice in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And so what I want us to see here is that there's real cultural pressure coming on our Messiah here. They are really hunting his life, but Jesus Christ in the grace and mercy that God had given him does not back down in this moment, but speaks truth and love to these people. And God uses this theological struggle in order to teach the true the church something true and how much we need it in this day. But God used <coughs> hardship and struggle to bring it about. Just as God has done throughout history as we see with Arius and Athanasius or Pelagius and St. Augustine that God used real, true theological struggle. Sometimes blood was shed over it in order to teach teach the church of Jesus Christ truth. And we praise God that this text is given to us at this time. Instead of giving way to cultural pressure, Jesus Christ boldly tells 
the truth. And by doing it, I want us to notice that Jesus shows the grave errors in our spiritual lives if we have a low view of marriage. And He does this by giving us an exceedingly high and biblical view of marriage. (coughs) And the majority of our time today, I want us to see that high view. How does Christ view marriage? I'm going to put to you today that three ways in our text we can see Christ's extremely high view, biblical view of marriage. And the first is to tell us that marriage has always been God's design for humanity. Always been His design. Now, that does not mean that there are not some people that are single. We're going to discuss that in two weeks or next week probably. But it does mean that God intended from the foundation of the world for the normal principle of human life to operate on the basis of marriage. Now, in the, in the wisdom of Jesus Christ here, I want us to see the clarity by which He speaks. For example, this morning, last couple of weeks, we've been considering the doctrine of the Trinity. And we have confessed that the Trinity is a difficult doctrine. Perhaps the most difficult doctrine in all of Christianity. And we have to do a lot of work and exegesis and systemization to try to make sense of what the Bible tells us about the Godhead. But Jesus says that marriage isn't a doctrine like that. In fact, the doctrine of marriage is extremely clear in the pages of Scripture. There's no need for high-level systemization or advanced Hebrew exegesis to see what the Bible says about the highness of marriage. It is manifestly clear. And notice what Christ does here to shock these men who are Bible scholars in their day, to shock them back to reality. He says one of the most offensive things that you can say to a proud student of the Bible. Have you not read? Are you not even aware that this is... In the Holy Scripture. Now, Jesus, when he says this, notice with me, in verse 4, he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning created them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus Christ takes Genesis 1.27... He created them male and female in Genesis 2.24 and puts them together here to show the exceeding clarity. And what Jesus is really showing here is that marriage, creating them male and female, was God's intention for mankind. He created them in the moment in the garden to put them together. God intended lifelong marriages, not like the animals, rest of creation they were commanded like man was to some degree to fill the earth but we're not to do it merely like the animals through procreation God intended that there would be a special covenantal institution put in place that we would glorify him through to do this now to bring this out as we consider Genesis chapter 2 we think of the goodness of creation that God had made In Genesis 1, we read seven times that God created the world good. And it ends on that high note. And he looked at everything he made and all was very good. But in Genesis chapter 2, as we read through the expanded creation of man, we see that something isn't quite right. In Genesis 2.18, we read that God tells Adam... It is not good for man to be alone. 
And that should shock us. Before the fall, before anything had happened negative to humanity, God looks at the man whom He created and He says it's not complete picture here. And He creates a woman. And not only creates her to be His helper, He does not only create her to be His sexual companion, He creates her to be in marriage and covenant bond with Him. (coughs) We see marriage as a ceremony even, as God takes this woman and gives her away to Adam to be united together forever. The two are to live in covenant together. And the first thing that should exalt marriage in our minds as Christ talks is it was always God's intent for man to live together in a marriage covenant. And that brings us to our second point, that Christ tells us that marriage is a covenant. Now, Christ doesn't tell that by the way of interpreting this text. But if we look at the text that he quoted, I want us to show that the covenantal language is exceedingly strong. And then if we look at the entire Bible, the Bible shows us that marriage, in fact, is a covenant made between two people. Now, the covenant itself shows the exalted nature of marriage. Because if we read through the Scripture, we see that God primarily interacts with His creatures through means of covenant. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He made a covenant with Noah and with David and with Abraham. This is the means by which God gives His promises to His people. And not just gives them, but upholds His promises. Now, consider with me, what is a covenant? We might be tempted to think it's just a contract. But I would tell you it's much more than that in the Scripture. A contract, (coughs) typically from from our way of thinking, entails something that is temporary. That one side fulfills an agreement and the other side doesn't. It's dissolved after a period of time. A contract typically entails a lack of trust in the other person. Right? I make a contract with you because I don't really believe that you uphold your side of things unless we have it in writing. Right? But a covenant, on the other hand, is is not just a contract. It is a promise. And not just a promise. It's a sworn promise. Okay, That is, God promises us something and, and swears, uses judicial language to confirm that thing. And even more than that, a covenant typically has curses and blessings attached to it. Now... To illustrate this, I think Sam Rinehan said this and it's stuck in my mind. It might be a promise for me to tell you. I I promise you that I'll I'll meet you tomorrow at noon to have lunch at Cheddar's. But it would be an entirely different thing if I said, I promise I'll meet you at lunch at Cheddar's and and God do evil to me if I don't meet you at Cheddar's tomorrow morning. Okay, A, A covenant has these blessings, these curses typically attached to them. And so a covenant is more than just an earthly contract. It's a sworn promise. Now, I bring that up because of the language that we have in what Jesus Christ has quoted. And this is where we're going to read the most scripture. So please try to stay with me. And I am indebted to Alan Branch, my professor in college, for bringing this to my attention. Leave and cleave. In Genesis 2.24, where the man is told to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh, this language of leave and cleave is highly covenantal in how it is used in the rest of Scripture. And I'm going to give us just a couple examples. First, the word leave, azab in Hebrew. Turn with me to Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah chapter 1. Again, I want us to see the exalted view that Jesus Christ has in quoting Genesis 2.24 that marriage is exalted because it is a covenant. And we can see that through the covenantal language of leave and cleave. First, the word leave in Jeremiah. (coughs) Excuse me. Jeremiah chapter 1. In verse 16, and then we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. I've tried to put these two together for easy reading. Jeremiah 1, verse 16. Notice with me. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in Azab forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and have worshipped the works of their own hands. The people of Israel had left the covenant of God, had broken the covenant of God, and the word that God chooses to use is the same word that is used in Genesis 2.24. They have forsaken me. They have left me. And the same thing is seen a page over in chapter 2 in verse 13. This is a very popular verse for good reason. God describes the breaking of the covenant by saying, for my people have committed two evils. First, they have azab, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what I want us to see here today is that when Genesis 2.24 is used in the Hebrew mind, the covenantal language I think would be unmistakable. Leaving father and mother, not meaning you forsake and hate your father and mother, but there is certainly a change in relationship there. No longer is your primary duty towards your mother and father, but your primary duty is to your spouse. Because you have not just left father and mother, you cleave. Cleave together. That is debak in the Hebrew with your spouse. And notice with me the covenantal language of this word, to cleave. Leave is to forsake covenant. To cleave is to cleave to a covenant or to cling to it tightly. Deuteronomy is the book we're going to go to this for this. And two texts from Deuteronomy to show you the covenantal language of leave and cleave. <coughs> Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 4. God says... But you who held fast, debak, to the Lord your God are all alive today. And then in chapter 10, in verse 20, we have debak again. The word cleave used in Genesis 2.24 to show covenant faithfulness in chapter 10 and verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and debak, hold fast to Him And by His name you shall swear. These two words, in and of themselves, if we consider how they're used throughout the Old Testament, show us the covenantal nature of marriage, of leaving and cleaving. A new relationship is made. A covenant is fashioned. And this word cleave, I I cannot help but give you another reference because I think it gives such powerful imagery. In Job chapter 41, the Lord to Job uses this word not in a covenantal context but to show the the closeness of two things. So we might ask what does it mean to cleave? How tightly is this cleaving? In in Job chapter 41 verses 15 through 
17, talking about Leviathan, says his back is made of rows of shield, shut up closely with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined. This is the word debak. Joined to one another. They clasp each other and they cannot be separated. Okay? To, to cleave could even be used in the Hebrew as a soldering together. So tight is the bond. And this is what we're given in marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And we can see that through the particular language of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. But if that's not convincing to you, the Bible says clearly to us that marriage is a covenant. And we see this in two primary texts. Proverbs chapter 2 tells us in a negative way about somebody who has forsaken a marriage that they've broken covenant. Notice with me in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16. God promises, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Notice how he describes her in verse 17. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The adulteress, the one who, who cheats on her husband, forgets her covenant that she's made with God. And even more clearly than that is in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. And... I hope you're still with me. We are trying to show that Christ, in quoting this text, has such strong covenantal language that we are, we are meant to adopt it. And one of the reasons we're meant, one of the ways in which marriage is viewed is so highly is because it is a covenant. Notice chapter 14 of Malachi chapter 2. <coughs> I'm going to read verse 13 as well. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Notice verse 15, did He not make them one with a portion of, their spirit, of the Spirit in their union together? And I want us to see how this goes against the Pharisees. The clear language of the Old Testament, both in the actual language that is used in the Hebrew in Genesis 2.24, and the rest of Scripture talking about marriage as a covenant shows a deep sworn promise and commitment that these two people have to one another. Pharisees are willing to say that it is lawful and good for you to cast away your wife for absolutely any reason. Jesus' quotation of this text shows us the exact opposite. Marriage ought to be highly regarded because God intended it from the beginning and because that marriage is a covenant. A covenant of companionship between a man and a woman. And therefore, we ought to regard it very highly. Marriage is magnified as a covenant in Scripture. Thirdly, Jesus tells us that marriage is real union. Notice that with me. And this is Jesus' main point. Marriage is real union. After He quotes that a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, notice what He does. He says, so He gives us interpretation. 
They are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. It is more. Marriage is more. It is highly exalted, not just because it's a human covenant made between two people, but because God does something actual and real in that union. There is a real union here, and that is the clear meaning of what Jesus Christ has spoken. That is, Christ simply reads or states Genesis 2.24, and He gives us the clear interpretation of what those grammatical and historical words mean. Therefore, they are not two, but one flesh. And how profound is that, brothers and sisters? If we think about that today, it is right and good for us as we consider all the time that Christ has made us one with Himself in union. And it's not, a, it's not something that is merely a beautiful statement. It is actually true. There is real union between husband and wife. And Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, this wonderful text that you should probably keep a finger in. (coughs) Genesis 5, Paul draws this same point out. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That in marriage, God does something mystical that we don't understand in some way that unites two people together in reality. And how silly is divorce if we consider this option? If what Paul says is true, that we are one flesh together, and what Christ says is true, that we're no longer two but one, how silly is it to consider divorce as a viable option for us as a normal option for the party that has not broken covenant through adultery or separation, but rather just as an inconvenience. The Pharisees were ready to get rid of this real union at any time. And it just reminds me, a ridiculous illustration, I'm sure, but imagine a man with an ingrown toenail. Now, you might say the man would want to get that toenail cut off, But we're united together in one flesh. How ridiculous would it be for that man to say, I have this ingrown toenail that drives me so crazy. I want to get rid of both of my legs to get rid of that ingrown toenail. As silly as that illustration is, that's what we are saying when we are willing to put away our husbands or our wives in marriage because of something that is unpleasing to us, something that annoys us, something that we can't quite live with in our physical thinking. This text... The reality that marriage is real union ought to change the way that we view our spouses. That they truly are one flesh with us and we ought to care for them as we would a member of our body that is hurting. And Christ says this from the clear grammatical historical application of the text that he just quoted. But I want us to see that Christ does more than that. He goes beyond that in verse 6 and gives a theological deduction here. He gives a theological conclusion to what he has just read. Notice, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. Jesus Christ takes the clear meaning of this passage that the two have become one and he deduces a theological 
meaning from this. If God has really united two people together, then logically we should not dare attempt to separate what God has put together. How foolish and how sinful it is for man to think that what God has truly joined together, we can at any moment's notice drive a wedge between and separate. This is meant to put fear into our hearts, brothers and sisters. We have no right to undo what God has done through covenant. We have no right to take that in our own hands because God has really made us one. And so, a summary of verses 1 through 6 is that we read from the lips of our Savior something that should cause us to tremble as we consider the relationship that we have to our spouses or the relationship that we will have to our future spouses. It should cause us to be at awe at the goodness of God in joining two sinners together. Marriage should be exalted among us because of what Christ has said. It's the intention that God had from the beginning. Marriage should be exalted because it is a God-instituted covenanted, God instituted covenant. And it should be exalted because God really and truly unites two sinners together in marriage. But the thing that most highly exalts marriage is not even on the lips of our Savior in this passage. And I think that's profound. As Christ defends this to them, He leaves it to the Apostle Paul to bring out the most glorious and beautiful thing about our marriage that truly exalts marriage in the eyes of His people. In His wisdom, Christ allows for the Apostle Paul to give us the most astounding truth about marriage that truly exalts it beyond all of our comprehension. Please turn with me, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 5. Because here, we see that marriage is highly exalted and should be most highly exalted in our mind because this human institution shadows Jesus Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, and this is something that we're aware of and that we speak of often. But it is not possible for us to hold the idea that God exalts marriage so highly as to shadow Jesus Christ and for us to look at it lowly like the Pharisees. And I want us to see first and foremost that marriage between His church was always God's design. Just as it was for physical marriage. God created man, male and female, that we would normally unite together in marriage to do God's will and to glorify His name, I would say similarly that it was always God's will for the Father to give His Son for His bride. Notice with me the amazing words of Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 31 through 33. Notice Paul starts at the same place that Jesus starts by quoting Genesis 2.24. And he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Notice this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want us to see the beautiful thing that Paul says here. He quotes Genesis 2.24, and notice what he says. 
He says, I'm saying to you that the true and full meaning of that passage is not just human marriage. The true and full meaning of Genesis 2.24 that has always been there is that it's talking about Jesus Christ and the church. God always intended for Christ to come and to seek His holy bride and to be joined to her. God always intended this. And we see this even in Genesis 2.24 as Paul tells us this is what that text is talking about. Oh, but more than that, Christ came to make covenant with us, didn't He? The new covenant in His blood. Christ came to ordain. Christ came to fulfill the covenant. And He did this by leaving His Father in heaven and being joined to His bride. The Father sent His only begotten Son into this world. And He willingly left eternal bliss and harmony to come to this earth and to be joined to His bride, the church. We see Genesis 2.24, don't we, in a more full way here. Christ eternally joined to His bride so that we can go back to the Father. And thirdly, we are really and truly united to Jesus Christ through faith. That when we believe in Him, as we're married to Jesus Christ, we're truly one with Him in every way. We get all of His blessings and He receives everything from us. Just as in earthly marriage. When all of you got married, one of the first things that happens is that everything belongs to your husband is transferred to you, wife. And husband, everything that belongs to your wife is transferred to you, isn't it? You share common property and own all things. And this same thing is true of Jesus Christ. That when you became married to Him, you got everything that is His. All the inheritance. All the glory. All the honor. All the riches. All of His righteousness and peace became yours. But He also got everything that's yours. All of your sin. All of your unrighteousness, all of your wickedness, all of your poverty was transferred over to our great husband, Jesus Christ, in the moment that you had faith with Him. We have true union with our Savior. We have true union with Him. And I I hope through just briefly walking through and weekly walking through these few verses, we would see the high and exalted view that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has of marriage. He views it as extremely highly because of all of these things, but most profoundly because it shadows our union with Jesus Christ in marriage in the church. And if all of that is true, brothers and sisters, we must hold our marriages in honor. If marriage is to be viewed this highly, then we must conform our thinking about marriage to the Bible and not to the culture or to our own feelings. (coughs) When I consider the passage this week, we might consider ourselves, and in many ways it's true, that we are culturally thousands of miles away from first century Palestine. There are many things that are different about our culture, but considering the doctrine of marriage, we're not too far apart. The only difference that we might have in our culture and the Palestinian culture is they believe that a man could put away his his wife for any cause, and we believe that either party can do it. It might be the only difference that I can perceive clearly in this text. Just like them, we, we imbibe typically 
imbibe the belief that the end goal of marriage is about my individual happiness. Isn't that true? Even as Christians who have been raised in church and and really know the truth, the culture seeps into our minds so often that we really truly believe that marriage is really about my happiness. If she's not making me happy, I can get rid of her because God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. We live in such a therapeutic form of Christianity that is miles away from the Bible. This text, when we read it, ought to cause us to question the knee-jerk reactions that we have in our heart towards marriage. Okay, That they're about our own personal happiness. And we ought to put to death these unbiblical attitudes. But we should labor, not just to put to death unbiblical attitudes, but to inculcate biblical attitudes about marriage into our lives. Hebrews 13.4 says this, as he ends marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We're called to look at marriage as a wonderful thing, something that's a blessing. And I, I don't have to tell you today, and you might be thinking, well, you don't know who I'm married to. Well, I have an idea of who you're married to. I have to look at myself in the mirror every day. And I'm, I'm glad I'm married to her rather than a copy of myself. Scary as that would be. We're married to sinners. Some of us are married to unbelievers. And that's a a painful thing for us to think of. But God in His providence and His sovereignty has put these things together for a reason. He uses our spouses that we're united to in covenant to grow us in the Lord, to help us to cling to Him. Our spouse is our closest neighbor that God has put us in communion with and in covenant with. We need to learn how to view marriage with esteem. And if you're single, you're to view marriage with honor and esteem. Not just as something that you can perhaps enter into one day to fulfill your sexual desires, but we're called to trust the Lord in your singleness and that God is using singleness even today to fulfill the calling that you have to the Lord. We're going to look at this next week, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this in, in detail. I, the language here is shocking to me. The apostle writes to the church and he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Isn't that interesting? The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. This is true. Your your singleness is given to you by God in this moment, maybe for the rest of your life, I don't know, but it's given to you for a purpose. God knows it. And that you'd use that calling that God has called you in His providence for good. (coughs) So if you're single today, use your singleness and faithfulness as God wills. But if you're married today, the same thing applies to us. We should view the calling that God has called us in with our particular spouses and our particular struggles as God's will for us in this time. That we'd be faithful in it. We must conform our thinking, not just about marriage in general, but brothers and sisters, conform your thinking about your spouses themselves, your particular spouses, to Scripture. As we've already talked about, your spouse is a gift from God in covenant bond. Your spouse is your flesh. Your flesh. And we ought to train ourselves day by day as we're getting angry and upset with each other at times. 
that this is my flesh. She is one with me. He is one with me. And therefore, it should change how we treat one another, brothers and sisters. Most of all, this is a picture of the gospel, is it not? It's a picture of the gospels to conform our minds to the fact that this person is meant to represent to me in some meager earthly way the real relationship that I have to my Savior Jesus Christ. If you look at your spouse and she's faithful or he's faithful to you and knows that they won't leave you or forsake you no matter what you do, they will stick by you. How much more is it true of Jesus Christ? All the, perfect, all the, all the good things of this earth are perfected in God. They're perfected in God. If you see faithfulness and goodness and trust and mercy in your spouse, it is infinitely more in your true husband, Jesus Christ. And so, you marriage is a picture of that and honor it as that. So in conclusion today, Christ exalts marriage to an extremely high degree, but waiting until His crucifixion and resurrection for His Apostle to fill the image out for us. Marriage should be highly honored among us because it's always God's intention in creation, but it was also God's intention in redemption. To unite us together forever in Christ. And I I pray and hope that this will conform our minds, that our marriages would be healthier, that we would honor and adore marriage and look forward to the great marriage feast that we will have in heaven forever. As we turn our eyes to the Lord's table today, that's what we are waiting on. That's what we are waiting on. Waiting to be visibly, physically, sensibly united to our Savior forever and ever in heaven. And here we have a a typical representation of that. As He invites us to His table. It is the Lord's Supper And we are not to envision because it is His Supper that He is absent from it. Rather, He calls us to His table to commune with Himself and to commune with all the bride of Christ today. Brothers and sisters, this is a blessed picture of our union together to have fellowship with Him now as a picture of the way we will forever. I'm going to give us a few minutes to, to confess our sins, to rejoice in what He's done for us, and we will continue.